tell you, if that song doesn't get your fire going, your wood is wet. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Sanctity of human life. Do you know that over the last, uh, well, since 1973, how long has it been? Almost 50 years, 49 years. Over 62 million babies have been aborted. That is, that is more than many nations of this world. There's coming a time of judgment. Uh, we, ought to, we, we need to be in prayer that, that this, this holocaust of our children will end. It is good to be with you this Sunday morning. This is the last sermon in the series from 1 Samuel concerning the, the ark of God and the Philistines and Israel. Uh, today's the last one. And then next week we're going to have a sermon on giving. And I know that uh, you probably <laughs> you'll want to be here for this sermon on giving. And then, <laughs> uh, say, well, I think I'll pass on that one. Uh, no, it is essential. You know what? Giving is an, is a, is an act of worship. If, if, we exclude, if we exclude giving, we're robbing God of an act of worship on our part. So I trust that you'll be here next week for that. And then following that, uh, for the next umpteen gazillion weeks until, uh, until we're done or until something else happens, uh, uh, we're going to be looking at one of the great books of the Old Testament and how it so strongly relates to the church. We'll be looking at the book of Nehemiah. Uh, what a wonderful Old Testament book, and we'll go through that entire book, the book of Nehemiah, and that will start the Sunday after next. But for right now, we're going to finish up with 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, we'll, we will read on through verse 12. And the men of Kiriath-Jearim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. And consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jearim, the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtoreth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on the day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to the battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them, so that they were routed before Israel. 
the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as Beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, may you bless the reading of your word. And Lord, may you bless the people who have heard this word, Father, that as, as uh, we go through this day, Father, may we keep in, in mind the fact that, uh, that you are a God who hears the prayers of your people, Lord. Uh, you answer us according to the need of that particular hour. And Father, we have a great God, and we thank you, Lord, that, uh, that our God is Jesus. He is our rock. Now, Lord, we bless you today. Illumine and enlighten our hearts for the understanding of your word in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Israel had gone to war against the Philistines and suffered a, a terrible defeat initially. You go all the way back to 1 Samuel in chapter 4 and verses uh, 10 and 11. We read, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent and the slaughter was very great. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The battle was lost, the ark of the covenant was taken, and we read in chapter 6 that after a number of of, of, of serious and unpleasant events, that the Philistines returned the ark back to Israel. And so this brings us to chapter 7. Israel now has the ark, and what do they do with it? When you get something back that has been so prized, you would think that you would rejoice and you'd put it back where it belongs, but uh, they didn't do that. For 20 years, for 20 years after the ark was returned to Israel, the ark of God sat in the home of Abinadab in a town called kiriath Jearim. And this little town belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. It is in a, it's amazing that the, the, the ark of God lay in some remote place of obscurity for all those years. And all the while, the people of God seemed to be comfortable to worship without it, separate from God's presence. It seems to be that they were more interested in the style of worship than they were the substance of worship. Sometimes we get caught up in in, in how we do worship rather than why we do worship. We, We want particular songs. We want a particular style. We want to say, well, we want... We want a contemporary service. We want a blended service. We want a traditional service. Has it ever occurred to us, it's not what we want, but what honors God? It's not the style. It's the substance of worship that is important. In the manner of formal religion, they held their view of God as a sacred and and spiritual belief. However, in the, in the manner of acceptance of real, genuine worship, they were devoid of any sense of God's nearness. 
It was as if they were saying, God, we've got this. We do not need you to be here. As a New Testament church, if you look at the New Testament, you look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul tells the church, Paul writing to the church at Philippi tells them this, that they're to be of the same mind, they're to be, remain in the same love, they're to be united in, in one spirit, they're to be intent on one purpose. That is what the church is to be, not, not divided not no friction, no factions, not divisive, but we're to be together in, in a sense of our mind, our love, our spirit, and our purpose ought to be united. But it's hard to do that when the substance of worship has been removed from us. Why do we come together? Is it just to hear someone sing and someone speak? Is it to see who's going to be here and who's not going to be here? The reason we come together is for one reason only, and that's to worship God, isn't it? 20 years, 20 years had come and gone, and we're told in verse 2, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. If, if there is to be a real and genuine repentance, renewal, and revival in our churches, there must come a time in our churches, just like Israel, to become weary of dull, stale, and lifeless, lifeless services. Music should be uplifting. The sermon should be with Passion. The hearts of the people should have a bent toward God. We cry out to God to renew our passion for both His presence and His Word. In Psalm chapter 34 and verses 17 and 18, it states, The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves them who are crushed in spirit. Let me ask. Is it time for we, the church, to lament? Are we wanting God to hear and deliver us? Isaiah the prophet writes, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who will tremble at my word. What God wanted from Israel is that they would rid themselves of their idolatrous gods. What gods might we have that are an idol? The Lord says, don't make any graven image. The Lord says, have no God before him. But what gods do we have that will steal our hearts? There's one God who is creator, who is sustainer, and who is redeemer. The God of eternity, the God of history. It's the God of the Bible. In verse 3, we find the name of one of those idolatrous gods, the name of Astaroth. You ever hear of the God named Astaroth? Why is this name mentioned anyway? Astaroth. We don't hear that name anymore, do we? This god, or shall I say goddess, is singled out due to the fact that it was the idol that the people most identified with back then. 3,000 years ago, she was the god, the goddess that people really related to. 
Astroth was the goddess of sex and war. And this, this goddess, this belief in this unreal God led Israel down a path of lustful shame. Keep in mind, true and genuine repentance can only happen when we put anything that has captured our hearts to be put away from us. And there is now a renewal of our hearts for the love of God. But this only happens when we separate ourselves from anything that is seen as an idol, our pos- especially possessions. I remember one time, I w- years ago, I was pastoring, a, while I was in seminary, pastoring a small church near St. Joe, Missouri. And uh, myself and my song leader, who was a, a, a farmer, we're, we went, to, went out to visit a man. And, and the man said, he said, you know, I really don't have time for church and for God he says, I have all this to take care of. What happens to a people when we don't have time for God? Are we really successful? Is that what you would call success? Because you have possessions? It's kind of like the man in the Bible says, you know, I have so much, I need to build bigger barns. I need bigger silos to hold my produce of my field, a bigger loft for my hay. Is that success? Possessions, sports, money, whatever. Popularity. Psalm 42, 8 states, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. When Israel in their hearts determined to put away their idols, when they decided that God is to be the priority, it says that, the, that Samuel, the, the, the prophet, gathered them together at a place called Mizpah. So we look at verse 6 of our text, and it says, They gathered to Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. Now, why would they pour water out before God? What has that got to do with anything? Two things that we should look at in verses 5 and 6. First, Samuel's main concern in gathering the people together at Mizpah was to get them in a proper relationship with God. You know, before we can have renewal, restoration, revival, before we become repentant, there needs to be a proper relationship with God, a desire to be drawn closer to God. But why, but why Mizpah? You'll find that both in the books of Judges and 1 Samuel, that Mizpah, this, this place, is presented as, as a, a place, a city of prayer and worship. Wouldn't it be wonderful that you as evangelists going out and sharing the gospel, that, that someday, that someday, that people will look at Hazelwood as a place of prayer and worship. Because the Spirit of God would be so heavy upon the people here. 
place of prayer and worship. Would we ever see that in America? That there would be a place of prayer and worship? It seems to be that right now that when you find a place of prayer and worship that there are regulations trying to restrict that. We need that in America today. That there would be a place or many places of prayer and worship. In the past two years, I've mentioned this many times already, I need to reiterate this. I want you to really listen to what I'm going to tell you. In the past two years, we have, due to an illness, a virus, moved worship from a corporate gathering to our watching it on TV or the internet. Folks, that is not the same as assembling ourselves together. Unless you are physically unable to attend church. But for many, for many, worship has become an at-home convenience. God have mercy on us. If we feel that we could worship at home apart from our brothers and sisters in Christ, God have mercy on us. If we feel that we need worship to become more comfortable and more convenient, then God have mercy on us. We, we as God's people need to gather at our Mizpah. We need to come together as Israel gathered together. We need to come together as God's army gather together. Not separate, but gather together forsaking not the assembling of ourselves together, but we need to get together. The second thing to consider in verses 5 and 6 is found in the phrase, and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. Here the people were saying to God in a sense, our hearts are broken. When will our hearts be broken? And, And pour them out before you, Lord. We might say that the pouring out of the water symbolized the tears they shed due to their, neg- their neglecting of the God who saved and delivered them. Notice in verse 6, the repentant hearts. They say, we have sinned against the Lord. Church, do you hear that? Psalm 62 and verse 8 says, trust in the Lord at all times, O people, Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So Samuel and Israel go to Mizpah for prayer. Samuel and Israel go to Mizpah for worship. Think of this. When they gather together, when they gather together, what does the enemy think? When the church gathered together in Mizpah, the church, the called out ones, the ecclesia, the called out ones, when they gathered together in Mizpah, the enemy looked at them and says, they have gathered for war. My friends, you are the church of Jesus Christ. When you gather together, your enemy, the devil, thinks that we've gathered for war. And sure we have.
the Philistines, the enemy of God and Israel, see this gathering as a sign of war. You know, initially Israel did not gather for war. She came together for worship. But we have an enemy. We have an enemy. We have three enemies that we must contend with every day, don't we? There is the world, which is our enemy. And it entices us to follow its lustful and greedy ways. There is the flesh that we have as an enemy, which deludes us into thinking to care for self, to promote self, and to seek for more and more self-esteem. People in business, when they, when they get their quarterly or, or bi-yearly or yearly evaluation, this is, this is how we think. That performance plus the opinion of others equals self-worth. And, and that, that thought, that thinking is rampant across this world. That my performance plus your opinion gives me self-worth. Is that true? Is that what, is that what gives you self-worth? What other people think of you? Of your ability to do things? My self-worth and your self-worth is not based upon what people think of us or what we do. Our worth is based upon what? God's perspective of us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Your self-worth is found in, in Christ, not in opinions of others. Then there's a third enemy. He's the devil whose main goal is to cause us to doubt and deny God's word and to put us in a position to determine what we believe, what we believe to be good or what we believe to be evil. And this is exactly how Satan tempted Eve. Israel's newly recommitted hearts brought significant troubles for them. And wouldn't you suppose that the Philistines would have hoped that the people of Israel would have stayed home, stayed home and maybe engaged themselves in some other activity. Perhaps go to the chariot races or, or watch some lines chew up a few religious fanatics. How about getting involved in some social justice thing uh, where everyone walks away with some warm, fuzzy feelings Maybe save a whale or feed a duck. Let me ask you this question. Would you suppose the devil would want us to all stay home and socially distance ourselves from one another? I think we should do that. We can all stay home. Sit at home watching on the internet. I don't even know how you get on that thing, but I think I'd break it if I sat on it. Watching, watching on the internet, and, and we can all stay home. We can all put a mask on while we're by ourselves. Is that what God wants us to do? To stay home? We've gone through Delta, we're in Omicron. How many more of the 20-some other Greek letters are we going to have to go through? 
This isn't for the pandemic only. We should always rejoice when we have the opportunity to meet together. Time to come together. An hour of praise and worship of the Lord. In Psalm 122, verse 1, the psalmist writes, I was glad. Listen, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Friends, Israel is not wanting war. They carry no weapons. They had no shields. They wore no armor. Yet what they had was more than enough to defeat the enemy. Folks, what you have in you is more than enough to defeat the enemy. There's a verse in 1 John 4, 4. Do you believe the Word of God? 1 John 4, 4. Greater is He who is in me than he who is in the world. Greater is he, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. We either believe that or we don't. We face an enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But greater is he that is in you. Greater is he that is in you than all those things. Folks, I want you to know that Satan is our adversary, that he is our accuser, that he is an angel from hell, that he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, that he is like a roaring lion, that he is the ruler of the darkness of this world, that he is the father of lies, that he is the tempter of God's people, that he is the God of this world. But we also are fully aware that Jesus has assured us That he will build his church and the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. A hymn that goes back to the late 1800s. In fact, a hymn of the guy that put this hymn together is a fellow by the name of Ira Sankey. Anybody know who Ira Sankey is? Ira D. Sankey was the music director for a fellow that's unknown by many. A guy by the name of Dwight L. Moody. Ira Sankey was his music leader. And this is his song. But in verse 3 of his song, that song called Faith is the Victory, listen to verse 3 of it. I'll read it to you. I won't sing it to you. He says, On every hand the foe we find drawn up in dread array. Let tents of ease be left behind and onward to the fray. Salvation's helmet on each head and truth all girt about. The earth shall tremble neath our tread and echo with our shout. Faith is a victory. Faith is a victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. Wouldn't you love to have an army of God's people who will lift high the standard, the banner of Christ? Come fire or flood. The church of God shall stand. Come disease or death, 
the church of God shall stand. Come plenty or poverty, the church of God shall stand. Come plague or pandemic, the church of God shall stand. Folks, it's time that we, the bride of Christ, the church of God, the household of faith, build our stone, our help, our Ebenezer to the Lord. This stone, this altar is Jesus. He sits above the world enthroned in glory. He is our rock, also our deliverer, our salvation. Friends, it is time for the church to cry out as Peter did. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we need an army. Lord, not an army that carries shield and spear and weapon, but an army who holds close to the Word of God, who has within us a greater power than all the power that this world may have. That we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That God Himself resides within us. Father, may we be brave and bold. May we cleave unto your word, believe it to be the truth. May we stand firm upon it. May we act as your people. Even in the midst of whatever might be going on in this world, Father, may we stay true to you. In Jesus' name, amen.